Well, now at last it is time to do the horsey dance. So let's open our eyes and our hearts and our belly buttons and whatever else the kids were exhorting us to open. And most of all, let's open up Galatians, page 975 in the church Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26 to 6, verse 10. And Paul finished last week, since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must partner in all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for the great privilege we have this Father's Day to sit together as a family and hear the very words of our Heavenly Father. And so as we come under your words together now, would you shape us more and more by the cross of your Son, work in us through his spirit of love for the good of your precious church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's almost nothing in the world as precious to human beings as a true friend. You don't make many in a lifetime, do you? And the instinct to find companionship, a brother in arms, that runs deeper inside us than a knife can cut. It struck us again these last few weeks, even for the littlest kids who've never really known loneliness or sorrow, one thing can make them utterly grief-stricken. And it's simply saying goodbye to a friend, even someone they've squabbled with endlessly for seven years. And if there's anything at all human beings fear more than death itself, Surely it's dying alone, dying unloved. Isn't that true? People often mock Nelson's last words as he lay below deck, shot through the spine. Kiss me, Hardy, he said to his friend. And it sounds so quaint now, doesn't it? I suppose you think it's just the sort of thing an Englishman would say, those silly Englishmen. Except isn't it exactly what we'd all want? The tenderness of someone who loves us in that moment. God seems to have designed us as creatures who need 
one another. But if you ask us what gift you most wish God would give you right now to keep you walking with Christ, I wonder how many of us would ask for a good friend. I think what Galatians 6 reveals is possibly the single most underrated and unacknowledged spiritual gift that God has to give. It's not the gift of tongues or prophecy or any of the things we get all excited about. No, the spiritual gift which God most treasures, and we today often seem most ambivalent to, is the church. Brothers and sisters who walk alongside us. Well, as we head towards the end of this letter, Paul has been helping this church, who he loves so deeply, to search for a real answer to the problem of their flesh, their corrupted and selfish natures. He began by showing them that the real Christian life is a life of freedom. Chapter 5, verse 1, freedom from guilt and despair and from that legalistic burden of religion. But the one thing his gospel doesn't mean yet is freedom from our struggles. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Last time we saw that it was actually Paul's gospel which takes sin and God's law most seriously. Legalism looks for easy answers now, but Paul's gospel is all about patient hope in a real solution. Not one we achieve ourselves, but chapter 5, verse 5, one we have to wait for and wait with real patience. It's a gospel all about deliverance from this entire evil age. That's the phrase he began his letter with. And so no quick religious fix in this age is going to fix our struggles for us. In fact, what we're shown in chapter 5 is that when the Spirit of Jesus takes possession of a person, if anything, he pours petrol on our conflict with the flesh. The battle gets harder, the fight becomes more intense. That is simply what life in this age for a disciple of Jesus is going to feel like. It's a life, verse 25, of walking in step with Jesus' spirit, a spirit of true love and self-denial. But thanks be to God, he has not abandoned us to a lonely struggle to simply fend for ourselves against these selfish natures of ours. Being joined to Christ automatically means being joined to each other. And that is one of God's most precious gifts of all in this passing age. 14 times as the letter closes, Paul used words like one another, anyone, the family or household of believers, the one who does this and the one who does that. It seems that God in his wisdom has designed us as creatures who are not normally able to keep going to the end on our own. It's not what we're meant to do. Even after we've come to Christ and had our sin forgiven, take a hot coal out of a fire and it will keep glowing for a little while, but eventually it will die, won't it? And eventually, so will a Christian faith that isn't nurtured by the things that God has given us to keep us going. In fact, let me say something that I, as a good Reformed evangelical, don't often find myself saying, you and I stand little chance of making it to heaven 
unless we belong to a charismatic church, and that doesn't mean a church obsessed with tongues and prophecy and vision or who can't keep their hands in their pockets when they sing. There's nothing about those things in this letter, but it does mean something very supernatural. It means a church, verse 25, walking in step with Jesus' Spirit. And in the previous chapter, Paul laid out very clearly what the real spirit of Jesus is interested in, all sorts of fruits that says no to ourselves and puts others first. That is real charismatic spirit work, fruit which shows that Christ and his cross have left their mark on us. Or you could put it the way he does in verse 26. It's just the flip side of the same command. Walking in step with Jesus' spirit means not becoming proud and provoking and jealous of each other. What a wonderful gift of the spirit it would be for us struggling Christians to be joined to a church learning to love like Christ. The most charismatic gift of them all. Well, that's what our passage is going to show us. This is all about brotherhood shaped by the spirit of the cross. Paul's going to paint us a beautifully practical picture of brothers and sisters who understand that grace kills our pride. So what does that look like then on the ground? Well, he tells us that because you folk at Edinburgh North Church know the uncomfortable truth about our own hearts, you're able to do two beautiful things for one another. You can carry each other because you share the same struggle. And secondly, you can invest together because the same things matter to you all. So firstly, from verse 26 through to chapter 6, verse 5, brothers carry each other through a shared struggle. It's a paragraph all about how broken people look after each other, isn't it? But Paul's focus isn't on the one who knows he's messed up and fallen into sin. He's interested in how the rest of us behave when that happens. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual or who live by the Spirit should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. If you've ever found yourself swallowed up by behavior that's crept up on you, destroying behavior, well, don't you think that word Paul uses in verse 1 is beautifully gracious? Restore. Every one of you has a room full of people here who ought to list in their primary calling your restoration. What is my calling? What has God given me to do with my life? Well, there's the children to disciple, a wife to love, a world to win for Christ. And there's that friend at church recovering from a difficult few years and a broken marriage. That is why God has put breath in my body. Oh, and I suppose somewhere up there is honoring Jesus with the job he's given me. Maybe that thing which absorbs 85% of my time and my worries in the world, but might be a means to doing all the other stuff. Think back to the coronation. There were teams and teams of men and women whose full-time job was lovingly and tenderly mending 
utterly priceless treasures, patiently replacing the gold leaf, filling the cracks, all so that those things could be put back to work one more time for the incredibly important thing that they were made for. I wonder if you've ever thought that your calling is exactly the same thing. Your job, when one of us here falls, is to put the pieces back together like a brother or sister would. It's a word, that restoration word, used for a fisherman mending his nets or a doctor setting a bone. Most of us do have bits of gold leaf peeling off, don't we, here and there? We're bruised reeds showing the strain of use and abuse. But these people sitting all around you, they are precious treasures, priceless treasures with a holy function. Too precious to be allowed to sit forgotten in a church and crumble into dust. And notice, he doesn't give that restoration job to some elite class, to the elders or the specially religious lot. No, it's your calling. It is you who live by the Spirit who do the restoring. Isn't that an interesting way to tell who the spiritual people in church are? We all have our own ways of trying to gauge who is spiritual, don't we? Deep down, I think I must believe that the Holy Spirit lives and indwells people's bookshelves. That's why the first time we're in someone's house, we have a nosy around what books they're reading, don't we? Maybe we think the spiritual ones are the most gifted speakers or the bravest evangelists. That's not how this letter measures it. To be a spiritual person in this letter means you're an ordinary Galatian Christian. It is everyone gently and lovingly walking in step with Jesus. A spiritual person is someone who shows how deeply they've understood those great doctrines of justification by the way they love and care for others in church, especially the ones who belong to a different clique or class or who've fallen into some sort of sin and disgrace, verse 1. Because if it is Jesus' Spirit ruling us, well, we'll know what it means, don't we, to be cared for gently and tenderly. Isn't that how he deals with you? In tenderness he sought me, so weak and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back into his house again. So if this is what those fruit of his spirit look like when they're put to work in a church, do we see them? Patience kindness, gentleness. Surely Jesus' people ought to be the gentlest people on earth because we know, don't we, exactly how low we can sink ourselves and how deeply he waded into the filth to come and get us. Now that flesh, that struggle, that might look a little different in me to the way it looks in you. I hope for your sakes it does, but it's always ugly. So surely we Christians know that that struggle with the flesh is something we all share. There's nothing to hide here, is there? Or at least you'd think that we'd know. But there's one thing Paul worries about here which can stop us Christians being any earthly use for one another, and that is pride or conceit 
or as he puts it in verse 3, being self-deceived, thinking that we're something, that there's something different about me that means I would never fall as far as he or she has fallen. It's utterly graceless, isn't it? Christless. And the really ironic thing is that the Christian who thinks like that is actually in complete contempt of Jesus' law, even if that's the thing they've been building their whole identity on. Paul has had a lot to say about the law in this letter, hasn't he? But to a proud religious Galatian, the most offensive stuff is really the simple point he's making in these last two chapters. If you want to take God's law seriously, he's been saying, well, here's how, not by burdening each other with rules, and trying to perfect yourself with religion. No, you take the law seriously when you serve each other through love, gently restoring. That is what God's law was all about. Love for him, shown by loving each other, bearing each other's burdens, verse 2. Getting your hands dirty for the sake of God's infinitely precious people. You see the trap then of religious pride, don't you? It's possible to talk all the talk about holiness, but utterly miss what God really wants to see in our lives. And what use is a graceless Christian in God's precious restoration project? If I'm still so utterly blind to my own heart, well, what business do I have messing with anyone else's? I wonder if you remember that story a few years ago now of an elderly Spanish lady who took it upon herself to restore a precious fresco on the wall of her local church. She barged in one night with her big bag full of paintbrushes, full of confidence in her own ability. And can you imagine the horror when people came to church next Sunday? For years and years, they'd stared up at a very faint but unmistakable Renaissance portrait of Jesus Christ. And suddenly, staring down at them from the old walls of the church was something looking suspiciously like a mutilated silverback gorilla. A little like the finger paintings my kids used to bring home from the nursery. What's that, darling? You're meant to ask all proudly. Is it a monkey or a a baboon? No, Daddy, it's Jesus, of course. Can't you see? But she'd forgotten, this lady, what a tender job, what a delicate job restoration is. And so the more and more she'd worked at it, the less and less human it looked, the less and less Jesus-like. And the newspapers had a lot of fun with the story because tragic though it was, at the end of the day, it was just a painting. But then we have to remember what God wants for his local church. He's making us into Jesus' image. And what a grotesque thing it would be if that image became a mockery like that Spanish fresco. I think that's what happens if the cross gets pushed aside by pride. So keep looking in the mirror, says Paul. Keep watch on yourselves and let each one of you test your own actions, verse 4. Don't measure yourself against your stumbling brother and let yourself feel all complacent. Because there is one test coming which each one of us will have to face on our own. When we answer to the Lord Jesus, verse 5, it'll be for our own works 
and no one else's. Each will have to bear his own load in that day. And if there's any boasting to be done then, it'll be for what his spirit has done for us and in us. No brother will be able to carry us through that judgment, only the Lord Jesus himself. And only if we remember that will we be able to carry each other here and now. I find that, yes, this little paragraph describes something that I desperately need from my fellow Christians, but it also tells me something I don't much want to hear myself. It tells me that crucifying my flesh means crucifying any sense I have that I am something special, that my ministry or my family or my grand plans or my personality makes me something. We all want to believe we're special, don't we? God wants us to be something far more ordinary and far more supernatural. He wants us to be the sort of restored, humbled people that other broken people can turn to when they are so full of shame they feel they can't turn anywhere else so that together we can learn how to walk once again in step with his spirit. And that ought to be an incredibly practical lesson for me. It means that, that somehow I just have to get better at making time, making the opportunities to care for other people. Because we've got to be realistic, haven't we? It's not all going to happen here on a Sunday as we're rushing in and out of church and busily taking care of a hundred other jobs. We run past each other on a Sunday morning. Our conversations get interrupted. It's often not the time and the place to open up, is it? And we can have all sorts of unrealistic expectations that in those 15 minutes after the service, we'll get all the friendship we've been longing for. That's what this church is going to give me, isn't it? And then when it doesn't happen in those 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, we think that people don't care about us. When often, none of us have really thought through what it will mean to take this responsibility seriously. Otherwise, we wouldn't expect it all to happen in here on a Sunday morning, would we? I know lots of us have our own ways of making these opportunities. For many of us, the kitchen table is the most valuable ministry tool we have. Precious work happens around that table. And the question is, who else gets invited to share it with you? Perhaps some of us have just found we have to get up early every so often to meet with a few other men before work. And there's nothing complicated or overly spiritual about it, is there? Just talking a little bit and making the time to ask how things are going at home or in the office and spending a few moments praying for each other. And if someone's got into a mess or we know there's trouble at home, well, he knows that we'll be there. Others will be there chasing him up, making sure he puts things right. That is just being brothers, isn't it? Carrying each other through a shared struggle. And secondly, more briefly, thankfully, we Christians have more in common than just our sinful natures, don't we? As a church, we all have a shared hope, a shared destiny, which means that the things we value now will be shaped 
by the future that we all share. Where we invest our time, our money, our efforts is going to be driven by whatever really matters to us all in the long term. And I think that is the message of verses 6 to 10. Brothers, invest together in a shared salvation. I wonder what on earth the link is between verse 6 and everything that Paul's been saying up till now. One who is taught the word must share or partner in all good things with the one who teaches. It seems like a, a bolt from the blue, doesn't it? A new topic there. Maybe it's just a bit of special pleading for the pastor's union about the cost of living crisis in Galatia. Or perhaps Paul has a reason for needling them a little bit about how much they value people who teach them the truth. This is written to a real local church somewhere, isn't it? And he's introduced this whole section, remember, with verse 26, let's not become conceited. And right after this verse, he's going to warn them a second time about being self-deceived and proud, the dangers involved in that. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the link between people who tend to be a bit proud and blind to themselves and people who don't really value Bible teaching? And you can work it out, can't you, that link? A proud Christian doesn't think he needs to hear uncomfortable truths. We know how things are done. We've got enough wisdom here at this church. We've been Christians a long time. We run successful businesses. We can import all of that into church. I'm glad we're the sort of church that preaches about that issue because people need to hear that. But of course, my situation's a bit more complicated. It doesn't really apply to me. God understands that. I don't think it's ultimately the pastor's pay that Paul is worrying about here. Partnering goes deeper than that, doesn't it? We partner with our ears, with our hearts. We trust that is happening right here, right now, as I'm speaking. Otherwise, I am just standing up here like an idiot, giving a pointless lecture. This is partnership. But isn't it so easy to fool ourselves into thinking that message is not really for me? And often if we do that, the money follows. Money does have an awkward way of showing up what we really value because it literally puts a number on it. I have a pastor friend who had to argue recently that his training minister needed a pay rise. He had kids to feed at home. He'd given up a career. His wife didn't have a very prosperous job. And it was a wealthy church with a proud history of truly valuing the Bible. And so my friend's suggestion was that if they truly valued training for expository ministry, then that minister in training ought to be on roughly the same package as a junior doctor training for his calling. Now, in a, a session full of doctors and lawyers, that suggestion went down like a bucket of cold sick. <laughs> Why should a trainee pastor get the same as a trainee doctor? That is an interesting reaction, isn't it? We value the Bible. We're all about that but we don't actually value, value it. We wouldn't put a number on it like that. And so God wants us to know that God isn't deceived as easily as we are. He will give us exactly what we're investing in. When harvest time comes, you'll reap 
whatever you've sowed. Isn't that a beautifully simple illustration? Some of you were organized enough to stick a bunch of potatoes into the ground earlier this year, and when August comes, it will be a bunch of potatoes that you pull out of the ground. Now, I am no gardening expert. In fact, it always seems like a miracle to me that anything grows in Scotland. But what sort of fool would I be to plant a bunch of shriveled up seed potatoes and expect a pineapple tree to pop up when summer comes around? And yet I'll spend a lifetime investing in my own sinful flesh, verse 8, living proudly and complacently, making a thousand tiny selfish choices, putting myself above others at church. And at the end of it, I'll expect a healthy reward. I'll expect to look like Jesus. And yet at each little decision, I managed to convince myself that God was either too stupid or too indulgent to take any notice. I think the question that we're really being asked here is, which age matters to us most? My pension company produces all sorts of amazing graphs showing me what I'm most exposed to, what countries, what funds, what sectors. I wish it could show me what age I'm most exposed to. Where are we invested? Is it this age, the age of our flesh, or is it the age Christ has come to deliver us into? Invest in this age, so to our selfish natures, and the rewards are instant. We will have whatever we want, or at least it will feel like it. We just have to remember that investments go down as well as up, and one day this whole age is going down, verse 8. It's heading towards death and decay. So is that really where we want to stake everything? The reward God gives us is eventually going to be the great giveaway of what we've truly cherished. If we cherish this age, we'll perish with this age. But if we keep going, verse 9, because what matters to us most is the world to come, the new creation, well, one day, At the proper time, something beautiful will grow, something eternal. And right now, we don't see much of it at all, do we, in our lives? Maybe just a little green shoot sticking out of the mud. That's what it's like with seeds, isn't it? It takes a lot of patience and trust to believe that you and I will grow into something beautiful. You stick this boring little seed into the ground. What an act of faith. But if you believe that that age is where the real value is, you'll plant those seeds in the ground and wait patiently and gently nurture whatever springs up. And notice Paul immediately puts that into practical terms. What does it mean to sow to the Spirit and wait patiently for God's harvest? Well, verse 9 It means looking after each other again. Once again, that is what Christ's Spirit asks for, putting others before ourselves, just like Christ does. Doing good to everyone, verse 10, and especially to the people who are actually in our lives, to the church. By all means, give some extra to the food bank, 
But why not start by tithing, by giving to the Delhi Bible Institute to feed the family you will actually spend eternity with? Sometimes it can seem a lot easier, can't it, to give our money to Oxfam than to love the prickly people who are close to us. The ones in our church family, verse 10, who's stumbling and struggling, we actually have to live with. But that's when it counts, isn't it? That is when it is most Jesus-like. That's when patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control make all the difference. Well, let's draw a little application together then. Every so often, we read the Bible, don't we? And we realize that God sees right through us. He knows exactly what I am. In fact, he knows it better than I do. He knows what I've deceived myself into thinking that I am. He knows just how much room and excuse I make for my flesh. He knows how little time and practical love I give to others. He knows how tight I am with my money. He knows what's in my bank account. He knows how much more I'd value a new watch or a new holiday or a new pair of shoes than a meal with a brother who needs a little encouragement this week. Just notice as we close that at no point in this paragraph does Paul talk directly about money. Doing good to all will be very costly, won't it? But Paul seems to think of that cost in a different way to me. It's not cash that you spend on a brother's need and then lose. No, it's seed that you plant in the ground, you invest, and then you wait patiently until one day all that time and effort and tears that we've spent on one another, one day in the blink of an eye, that will be all that's left. We'll look at each other and we will be astonished at what Jesus has made of us. And we'll thank the Lord for these brothers and sisters, his most precious gift that he gave and redeemed to keep us on the road, walking with his son. Well, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the cross of your Son where our curse was taken away and our brokenness covered over forever. We thank you for the gift of one another that you've placed us within a church with brothers and sisters to share our struggles and share our hopes. And we ask that you would make us more and more conscious of the truth about ourselves. That we would be in our own eyes just what we are in yours. So that with gentleness and with generous, persistent love, we would be able to help each other apply your gospel to our lives and so to your Holy Spirit. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.